this seems so official here, like we're about to have a press release. <laughs> An announcement, 13 people have achieved Shamantin You can always dream. Let's go directly into the practice, please find a comfortable posture. <clears throat> So begin as usual now by settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Spending a couple of minutes in mindfulness of breathing to calm the discursive mind. You may count 21 breaths if you find it helpful.
second phase, shamatha with the outer sign, according to the teachings of Padmasambhava. Continues, then position your body as before. Cast your gaze downwards. So commentary. He's assuming, of course, that you're sitting upright. This means that you just gently let your awareness descend, that is, your visual gaze descend. You're not really pointing it downwards, not focusing on it, anything downwards. But just letting it just utterly just, just release. In the supine position, essentially the same. Cast your gaze downward. Gently release your mind. And without having anything on which to meditate, gently release both your body and mind into their natural state. So commentary. Gently release your mind. He says, gently release your body and mind give up all grasping onto it, all identification with it, just releasing utterly, without focusing your attention on anything. You're releasing your body and mind into the natural state, which is to say you're not doing anything to them. You're not modifying your breath in any way. Your body is utterly relaxed. simply release your mind. All that remains, having released your body and mind, is just your awareness. nothing on which to meditate, and without any modification or adulteration, place your attention simply without wavering, in its own natural state, its natural lucidity, its own character, just as it is. Remain in clarity and rest the mind so that it is loose and free. 
Let's linger there for a while. I'll pick up in a few minutes. alternate between observing who is concentrating inwardly 
who is releasing? So commentary, very briefly, invites us now to, to recommence the oscillation, the arousal, the concentration, the intensification of awareness. And then the release, intensification and release. But he goes deeper now. He says, observe who is concentrating inwardly. Who is releasing? In other words, who is the agent who is doing this? He continues, if it is the mind, ask, what is that very agent that releases the mind and concentrates the mind? Steadily observe yourself and then release again. So now in this phase of practice, we are doing something. We are, we are voluntarily, intentionally arousing, focusing the awareness, right in upon itself, and then releasing. Now rather than focusing in just on the consciousness, focus in upon the agent that is doing something to this consciousness, and that is arousing and releasing rousing and releasing. Who is the agent? So probe inwardly right in upon that which is controlling the mind. This is not a rhetorical exercise. It's not giving us a task we cannot do. It is saying observe inwardly and see what you see. You seek to observe yourself as the agent, the one who is releasing and arousing your attention. Observe and relax.
in clarifying a type of awareness that we normally have. The sense of being the agent, someone who's doing this, speaking that, meditating this. And the practice now is to invert your awareness right in upon your lived experience of being the one who's doing the practice, meditating, controlling the oscillation of your awareness. As you examine inwardly, observing yourself, simply see what you see. You can succeed here. This is not impossible. If you see nothing, just a sheer absence of appearances, then that's what you see. If you see an appearance, examine it closely. Is that you? Is that the mind? Is that the agent? Is it just an appearance? Examine closely and release. Or if you find it helpful for a while, you may conjoin the oscillation with the in and out rhythm of your breath.
line of the instruction is steadily observe yourself and then release again and he concludes by so doing fine stability will arise and you may even identify pristine awareness do that too for one day
I want to uh, first just start off by welcoming, welcoming a very dear friend of mine, Andrea Capalari. He is the he's the head honcho around here. I'm just a visitor. I drop in and I fly away. He's uh, Andrea right here in the green. Is the resident meditation instructor here? Instructor here at the Tanya Pura Mind Center. Uh, very experienced teacher, scholar, translator for His Holiness. Uh, very good friend. Glad you can join us. Welcome anytime, as you know. Uh, so we come to this practice, this phase of the practice, and we see it as Padmasambhava is laying it out. It comes in two phases. I don't need to repeat. I think you're very familiar with it. The first part of it is just simply resting, releasing your body, body and mind in the natural state, and simply being present without focusing your attention on anything at all. And he's calling this, of course, shamatha, shamatha without a sign. It is so much in the mood of Dzogchen, the great perfection teachings and practices in general. And there's a lot more to Dzogchen than shamatha, of course. Shamatha is really the predatory. There's an ambience, an orientation, a feel to Dzogchen that is unique within the Buddhist tradition. I think the Buddhist tradition as a whole, at least that's my sense. And that is, in the Nyingma tradition, they speak when they look at the whole spectrum of teachings, or vehicles, they call whole modalities of practice, from the Shravakayana, Rajyaga Bodhayana, Bodhisattvayana, then on to the three outer tantras, the three inner tantras, so these nine yamas. The first eight, up to and not including the Adi Yoga, which are the teachings pointing to the great perfection, or Mahasandhi is called in Sanskrit. All of those entail effort. You're doing something. You may be doing a lot of things. Right? Uh, anybody who studied the Lam Rim, you know, there's a lot to be done there, or Lam Day, or Words of My Perfect Teacher, Jewel Ornament, Jewel Ornament Liberation, in the Gaidu tradition, in the Theravada tradition, there's so much to be done. Many, many practices to be done in order to liberate the mind, to free the mind of afflictions, of obscurations, to develop shama, to develop an ethical way of life, to develop samadhi, to develop wisdom. There's much to be done. Right? So roll up your sleeves, get down to the hard work, because there is a lot to be done. And so these, these first eight yanas, or vehicles of spiritual practice, are called from the Dzogchen perspective, and I think quite accurately, in Tibetan Tsurche. They're effortful. Strive diligently, the Buddha said. Strive diligently. So they're tsurje, with effort. They're jama, and that is you're modifying the mind, you're shaping the mind, like the like a potter shapes a pot. It's one of the analogies the Buddha himself gave. You, or the, uh, the Fletcher shapes the arrow. You're modifying, you're shaping, you're refining, you're improving and fixing, purifying your mind. There's a lot to be done. Roll up your sleeves and get to work, right? And in all of this entails action. There are things to do, right? That's good. Good. There are so many examples of great adepts from the Theravada tradition, the Chinese, all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Indian Buddhism, who have just turned into these glistening, radiant beings by following such a path. So you're not going to hear me criticize it. All I will say is that's not the only way. It's the only way I learned for the first 20 years, but it's not the only way. Right? And then Gyatura introduced me to Dzogchen in 1990. I said, ah, I know about the yang, what about the yin? And so the characterization of Dzogchen comes by different terms. Zhe without modification. Nothing to be fixed. 
that's a melach, or without effort. It's effortless. Effortless. Sounds good. And then shatel, nothing to be done. Devoid of action. Nothing to be done. Right. And in that effortless non-modification and that non-doing, then there's the path. So it really seems like, well, gosh, then why even bother with the other one? It turns out this is very simple and not so easy. But it is there. It is an option. And that's what he's presenting here in this first half of that phase of the Shamatu Vadaada Sangha. It's simply resting the awareness and not trying to fix your mind. There's so much to be fixed. And not trying to fix your body. There's so much to be fixed. I mean, there are a few people with just perfect bodies. But think, I think they're in a small minority. I can't remember when my body would even be closely approximating something I would just say, oh, it's just great. I think maybe, maybe when I was a teenager, but I'm not quite sure. I can't remember back that far. <laughs> and so, it really brings to mind a statement that's been made about Dzogchen for a long time, for centuries. And that is that this great perfection, this path of this ninth yana, Atti Yoga, the extraordinary, the extraordinary yoga. Ati means just extraordinary, like, whoa, ati. Mm -hmm. uh, that this is going to be especially effective. It's kind of a prophecy. It is a prophecy about these teachings. That this particular modality of practice, this orientation to practice, is going to be exceptionally beneficial, powerful, transformative, liberating in very degenerate times. Very degenerate times. When things look really bleak and hopeless, when people's minds are really heavily inundated with mental afflictions. The surrounding environment, pretty dark, five dregs and all that business. He said exactly in that occasion, when things look the worst, that's when Dzogchen really rises up and show, shows its full strength. When, when things are going pretty well, when our health, when our body feels pretty good, and the mind feels pretty nice, got a nice friendly mind, it's pretty virtuous, pretty serene, pretty chipper, you know? Then you feel, hey, I can work with this. I'll just make it better, you know? And you might really be inspired then, you know? To just improve it. No one improved models, just like, you know, the, the, the cell phones. They just, they just keep on getting better and better and better, you know? So you may be encouraged to do that. But when your body feels like wrecked, and your mind feels like a really bad neighborhood, uncooperative, gnarly, unfriendly, uncooperative. You might look at that and they say, I think I can't fix this body. And this mind, prospects do not look good. Also, especially when getting older. When you're young, you think, oh, I'll have some time. When you're getting older, you think, I don't have much more time. And if I've only got only a decade or two, or maybe you know, a, a day or two left, who knows? That may be too late. Too late. Right? Sound familiar? <laughs> In which case, then I say, well, if that's the case, then why not just take a detour? There's your body all screwed up, messed up, whatever. Here's your mind, perfect complement of the body, screwed up, messed up. And just say, you know, I don't think I want to go there. I think I'm going to take a detour, go right around them, release them, 
I'm going to release them both out of the rearview mirror. Like, bite me. Ha ha. That, that would be the, the phrase. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. You thought you'd get me, and I slip right around you. And just go straight from there. That's what he's saying. Release your body and mind. That's exactly what he's saying. I'm not joking around. That's exactly what he's saying. When you're resting your awareness right there, as he described in the first half of this phase, frankly, there really cannot be obstacles. You can imagine there are, and you can make them up, and then you can make up your own obstacles, and then they will obstruct you. That's for sure. You can always do that. Right. But if you look at the practice itself, there's this term in Tibetan, Barche. Barche, we translate it as obstacle. And it has a nice etymology. So there's, there's Gache, right in front of me, eight feet away. And so if I wanted to reach out and shake her hand, right, well, I could be reaching out, but then something can get in the way, like block me. Maybe Marta comes over and says, no, you can't, you can't touch the nun. No, not even shaking hands. Sorry, but I'm protecting the nun here. Dirty old man. <laughs> she might. I'm making this up as I go. In which case, Marta is the obstacle. She's cutting in the way. She's right in between Gache and I when I want to shake hands. And she said, no, no, don't touch the nun. Like that. And so she's the budget, she's the obstacle. I can't get to Gachi to shake her hand, right? Because there's something in between. Okay? Well, we have budget all the time. We have things we want. I wanted that job, I wanted to get that house, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted. And it's over there and I'm over here. And then there's budget, something that cuts in between, right? And so for all of these things, and then there's shamatha. Oh, shamatha, maybe one day, or vipassana. Or I want to have lucid dreams, I want, but what's getting in the way? And there could be all kinds of budget. They cut in between. They cut in between. Like just like two dancers, they're dancing, and then somebody says, I don't know if they've done this for decades, but a man will cut in, he'll tap the man on the shoulder. This is when I was a kid. I think I danced maybe three times in my life. And in the old, old fashioned time, you'd, you'd cut in, right? You'd cut in, you'd tap the shoulder, and then if it's a gentleman, you said, okay, stand back, and then I think I just dated myself by about a century, didn't I? In any case, you're cutting in. You're cutting in. This guy wanted to continue dancing with a woman, and you cut in, so you have to back off and give it a dance. Well, the point is that whenever we're involved in a mode of practice where we're seeking to achieve something that we haven't achieved, there can be bhaja. In fact, there almost certainly will be. Things will get in the way. You'll get tummy problems, you get the flu, You'll have, it'll be raining too much, you'll just stuff. Or just, the mind becomes dull, the mind becomes agitated, you lose inspiration, all kinds of stuff. They get in the way, they barge it. Right? But you'll notice in that first phase, or the first half of this phase, he made no reference to achieving anything, or to doing anything. If you're trying to do something, something could prevent you from doing it, right? But he made no reference to doing anything or achieving anything at all, or trying to do anything at all. He said, actually, release that with which you would try. You're going to try with your body or with your mind, or some combination of the two. But instead of trying to do something with your body or mind, he said, release them. So now it's left. Once you've released your body and mind, what do you still have? What's still there? Awareness. That really is, that's it. If you want to go out and say, okay, space of the mind, okay, but really what, what's there is awareness. 
And then he simply says, rest there in its own nature, its own, I've, trans, I've shifted the translation, you have limpidity, as I mentioned earlier, lucidity, its own, its own lucidity, its own character, its own natural luminosity. And he simply says, just rest there. So here's the question. What can come between you and your awareness? Because that's all you're doing. You're just resting in awareness. So now, what's going to be the parche? What's going to cut in between you and your awareness? So you're over here, and your awareness is over there. I can't even imagine what that would be. Because the you over here would be a non-entity. This, this you over here would have no body, no mind, and no awareness. I think that makes you nothing at all. Right? What would, what would be left? A mustache? Or the, the, the grin? Just a little grin, you know? The Cheshire cat or whatever. Nothing, right? So it's kind of like logically and empirically impossible for there to be any barcha to this practice. You can refuse to do it. You can give up on doing it. You can be lose motivation, of course. Then, you could, then you're not. But then it's not an obstacle to practice. You simply decided not to do it at all. But if you're doing this practice, which entails doing nothing at all, but releasing your body and mind, there can't come, nothing can cut in, get between you and the practice. And also, if your body feels uncomfortable, your mind feels uncomfortable, good, give them away. Just release them. And remain right there, naked. Without doing anything, without striving, and without modification. And see what happens. If we back up a little bit, I was really quite startled when this friend of mine, I think I told you earlier, or I, I, I taught just recently, where was it? Australia. You know, I know I mentioned it there. That a good friend of mine, he's a Tibetan, but one of the most bi bicultural people I know. We've known each other for more than 40 years. We were monks together in the monastery in Dharamsala back in 1973. Fascinating fellow. Very dear friend of mine. But, uh, I used to be about my age, but uh, trained as a Buddhist monk, and then trained for some years by Ishidun in Tibetan medicine, and then moved to the West and got all the degrees, all the way up to PhD in clinical psychology, research psychology, and now is a research psychologist at UCLA. Really quite a remarkable man, and his wife is remarkable. She's really, she's my primary healthcare provider, very, very expert practitioner of traditional Tibetan medicine. So, just a friend of mine, but really a wonderful friend. In any case, he was off. I'm going to leave this anonymous because I don't like pointing fingers. But he was visiting one um, institute of higher Tibetan learning in India. There are many, okay? And he was there, and he was talking about shamatha, about mindfulness, and so forth. And the scholars there, the scholars, because this was really a study center, big time, heavy duty study, and very good study. They're good at it. These scholars, when he mentioned shamatha, the scholars kind of like, What's the point of shamatha? You're just focusing on some image. How's that going to be beneficial? You're just sitting there. That's not going to do anything. Just, just placing your mind. You study more. And study more. Ever heard that one before? And then study more. You haven't studied Prakrit? What is your problem? You, be study, you should be studying Prakrit. You've only mastered Pali and Sanskrit, but what about Prakrit? <laughs> You've not nothing. And medieval Hindi, you have missed that all, then you must study, at least, at least study more. 
And so these scholars who call themselves Buddhist scholars, they weren't even aware that shamatha is beneficial. They just thought because you're sitting there and not doing what they're doing, that you're doing nothing at all. You're just sitting there wasting your time. How strange. Because if anybody who can read at all, you can see, but, but shamatha, then that dispels all the five obscurations and brings forth the five jhana factors and brings forth exceptional mental health and balance. And then sutra after sutra states, and I just read this, the, from the Buddha's own teachings, stating that the, the efficacy of your wisdom practice, your vipassana practice, is going to be directly correlated to your jhanata. That is, the more powerful, the more stable, the more your mind has been settled in a state of equipoise, the more effective, more transformative your vipassana and wisdom practice will be. There's a direct correlation. Very weak samadhi, your vipassana is going to be weak. doesn't matter how smart you are. It's going to be weak. You may have insight, but you just be pecking at reality. Woody Woodpecker, you know, but no duration, no deep transformation. So there it is for Vipassana. You know. The notion of developing bodhicitta, so this arises spontaneously, effortlessly, did your mind just become bodhicitta without shamatha? Lots of luck with that. Not going to happen, really. Right? Your mind is functional. How is bodhicitta going to really take deep root in a mind that's just you know, inundated with the five obscurations oscillating between excitation and laxity? And then lit up Lingla states, the great Dzogchen master of the 19th century, a tutor for the 13th Dalai Lama. He, in describing settling the mind in the natural state, he said, this is the basis for all samadhis of the stage of generation and completion. Direct quote. You know, if you're interested in Vajrayana, good. Why don't you develop mental balance first? Meditative equipoise. Settle your mind in its natural state, which is nothing more or less than dissolving your mind into the substrate consciousness. And then also we'll see from Padmasambhava, I think he's the authority for Dzogchen, and he'll say, it's in our text here, if you wish, wish to practice Dzogchen, wish, wish to realize Rigpa, wish to receive pointing out instructions, and have a really leave an indelible mark that continues to transform, transform and liberate, then first settle your mind in this natural state. So boy, that's a pretty broad sweep. Pretty broad sweep. Highlighting the centrality of this practice, and knowing there are different modalities. There is a way that entails doing something, focusing, striving, and that is this more developmental approach to shamatha. And here is the complementary way of simply discovering the natural stillness, the natural luminosity of your awareness, and your mind simply dissolves right into the substrate, substrate consciousness, and you discover shamatha. But now, having said that, I've been teaching a long time, I've heard a lot of feedback, a lot of it very, very helpful. And so one of the things I've heard many times is, I can't do it. It just, I hear you, I can understand it conceptually. I'm just not connecting. I just, I, I, I don't know what to do. Uh, I just, I can't do it. I'm going to go back to mindfulness of reading. Uh, it's just too elusive, too subtle, too abstract. Uh, I, I just don't get it. So, let's see what Padmasambhava says about that. <laughs> you know what's coming. So this is excerpted from Thomas uh, Reyes, a wonderful text, translated by myself under the title, A Space of Path of Freedom, with Gautra Gumbach's commentary. So here's Padmasambhava. And, and he's specifically addressing people who are doing this practice, and just finding, I can't do it. 
I, maybe even subtly mind, maybe I, that's a bit more tangible, I can do that, or, okay, mindfulness of breathing. Or maybe even focus on a Buddha image. That I know what to do. I do it poorly, but at least I know what I'm doing. Here's what he says. To introduce pristine awareness by pointing it out forcefully. You're about to give pointing out instructions, right? It is your very own present consciousness. When it is this very unstructured, self-luminous consciousness, what do, you, what do you mean? I do not realize the ultimate reality of my mind. He's responding to complaints. I can't do it. I can't do it. This ultimate reality of the mind, that's my translation of jitata. And I'll pause there. It's a pretty important term. You all know the term shunyata. Shunyata. So shunya is an adjective. It means empty. Ta takes, takes the adjective and turns it into an abstract noun. Empty. Empty. Mess. It's a very good translation. And then we have dharma, phenomena, right? Dharma, ta. It's the phenomenon-ness, the essential nature, the core nature, the real nature. A phenomenon is dharma, ta. So I call that ultimate reality. Because the ultimate nature of it is the phenomena. They appear this way. How are they? What, are, what enables them to be that way? Well, it's emptiness. Right? And then we have chitta. Chitta's mind, pretty standard translation. But then we have jitata. That is, what is it that enables the mind to be the mind? What is the very essential nature, the ground nature, fundamental nature of mind? Jitata. That is rikpa. That's rikpa. And so, he says, what do you mean when you say, I do not realize the ultimate reality of the mind? He continues, there's nothing here to meditate on. So what do you mean? It does not arise due to meditation. And that is, you're meditating and you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Right? When it is just this direct awareness, what do you mean, I do not find my own mind? When it is just this uninterrupted, clear <coughs> awareness, what do you mean, the nature of the mind is not seen? It's kind of like, you keep on creating these constructs that you feel you cannot achieve. Why don't you just release all that? Because you can already do this. It's already there. Don't strive to do something you can't do. Don't do anything at all, and what's left is the practice. When it is the very thinker of the mind, what do you mean it is not found by seeking? When there is nothing at all to do, what do you mean? It does not arise due to activity. When it is enough to leave it in its own unstructured state, what do you mean? It does not remain. When it is enough to let it be without doing anything, what do you, what do you mean? I cannot do it. That's my favorite one. <laughs> And you're right, you cannot do it. But have you been listening? Right? When it is unified, indivisible clarity, awareness, and emptiness, what do you mean it is affirmed and unaffirmed? When it is spontaneously self-arisen without causes or conditions, what do you mean I can't do it? When the arising and releasing of thoughts are simultaneous, 
What do you mean they do not occur together? When it is this very consciousness of the present, what do you mean I do not recognize it? The ultimate reality of the mind is certainly empty and without basis. Your mind is intangible like empty space. Is it like that or not? Observe your own mind. Empty and void, but not an nihilistic view. Self-arisen, primordial consciousness is original, clear consciousness. Self-arisen and self-illuminating, it is like the essence of the sun. Is it like that or not? Observe your own mind. Awareness, primordial consciousness, is certainly unceasing. Uninterrupted awareness is like the current of a river. Is it like that or not? Observe your own mind. The dispersing thoughts of ideation are certainly not being grasped. This intangible dispersion is like a hazy sky. Is it like that or not? Observe your own mind. Recognize all appearances as self-appearing. Self-appearing phenomena are like reflections in a mirror. Is it like that or not? Observe your own mind. All signs are certainly released in their own state. Self-arising and self-releasing. They're like clouds in the sky. Is it like that or not? Observe your own mind. This can be hardest for people who are real achievers. Hardest for people who are professional thinkers. Philosophers can have this have a terribly hard time doing this because they're so good at what they do. Philosophers are trained to think analytically and be tenacious and chew away and analyze and investigate and ask questions and probe more deeply and get totally entangled in the network of concepts. And they take that whole skill set and they say, I can't do that. Or people who are accustomed to achieving this and striving you know, people will know that I get up and go and do things and accomplish things. And they say, but there's nothing to do here. I mean, you just gave us nothing to do. So I don't think I can do that. But this is not in a way unique to Dzogchen. In a way it is. That is to make this the whole path, the whole vehicle, the whole yana. But I'd like to go back to the Pali Canon, because I love to see resonance. Not to say they're equivalent, but we have the Buddhist teaching, the core foundational teachings, the Four Noble Truths, and so forth, the Pali Canon, which is really kind of the granite foundation, to my mind, of all of Buddhism. There's a Shravakayana, it's a foundation. But Jaga Buddha, I'm on the basis of that Bodhisattva, on the basis of that Vajrayana. So in this Shravakayana, in these teachings in the Pali Canon, here's what the Buddha said. For one who clings, and clings is the same word as grasping, for one who is grasping, one who clings. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where there's no motion, there is stillness. Where there's stillness, there's no craving. 
there is no craving, there's neither coming nor going. Where there is no coming or going, there's neither arising nor passing away. Where there is neither arising nor passing away, there is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. Same mood. Same mood. <clears throat> that, what, yeah, just this time, it, what, what, one phrase jumped out at me. <clears throat> it's a statement <clears throat> where there is stillness, there's no craving. And what flashed to my mind when I read that uh, was this, I think, quite brilliant pairing, the matching of the five obscurations, the five nivarana, often called the five hindrances, and I'm going to call them the five obscurations, and the five jhana factors. It's good to be familiar with these. I'm not going to give a whole talk on them, but just one of them, one pair. Among the five obscurations, and what are the obscuring, these five obscurations, dipam, five obscurations, <coughs> I would say in this context, what they're explicitly obscuring is the natural purity, natural luminosity of your own substrate consciousness, or in the Pali, the bhavanga. They're the same. It's obscuring that natural freedom, that natural purity, the luminosity, the natural stillness, and the natural bliss that arises just sym symptomatically of resting your awareness in equipoise. Right? So why are we not constantly experiencing serenity, inner silence, bliss, and extraordinary luminosity, the clarity of awareness? Why isn't that just our modus operandi for everything we do? Because that's our birthright, that's our heritage. We own that more than we own our bodies or our minds, let alone anything outside, like family and possessions and reputation. Oh, that's all concentric rings. They just fall off even during a lifetime. Right. But then we become more nuclear. Okay, body, mind, but no, this is more intimate than that. Your substrate consciousness, that's a keeper. As long as you're in samsara, that's a keeper. Minds, bodies, come and go, come and go, come and go. So there's your birthright. Right? That's what you're born with. This is what, Shant, what, what Padmasambhava was saying. Settling body, speech, and mind in a natural state, what's the point? To ascertain substrate consciousness. That's what he said. That's powerful. He must have meant it, right? I don't think he's fooling around. And so that's really, that's your home. That's what nobody can take away from you. They can take away your mind, do sufficient brain damage, you know, boom, brain damage. You can lose your mind. Somebody can take your mind away. They won't get it, but you lose it. Clearly, somebody can kill you, they take your body. They don't get it, but you lose your body. Right? But there's no gun big enough, no damage severe enough to enable somebody to take away your substrate consciousness. That's, even the Buddhists can't do it. If they wanted to, they couldn't. All the Maras in the universe couldn't take away your substrate consciousness. So, that's your heritage, that's your birthright. That's really yours. If anything's yours, that gets pretty nuclear. And so then why isn't there why is it that we're not normally just experiencing this ongoing flow of a sense of well-being and luminosity and serenity, non-conceptuality, because it's obscured, obscured by the five obscurations. And what's one of the biggest ones, the first one mentioned, is this sensual craving, and not just for food and stuff like that, just the craving for all the bounties of the desire realm. And there's a lot of them. Right? That's what keeps business going. That's why we keep on having better and better cell phones. You know, desires of the desire. They're, they're coming out with a four-inch one, by the way. <laughs> I want it. But not that much. 
So what's the natural antidote for this craving, this fixation, the attachment to the attractions of the desire realm? Because that's what it's called. What's the natural antidote? Anybody know off the top of your head? It's good to know. Yes? Single-pointed attention. Single-pointed attention. Yeah, you're right. Single-pointed attention. Single-pointed mind. Natural antidote. Single-pointed means still. Not fluctuating, agitated, excited, and so forth. Still. Right? That's what he says right here. Right? Where was that? Where there is stillness, there is no craving. That's what he just said. Powerful medicine. So that's from the Pali Canon. And then we move on in this same vein, but we're going to jump from the Shravahayana to the Ati Yoga, to Dzogchen, to the Vajra Essence. Here's Padmasambhava stating. And this is well into the text. After he's covered Shamada, Vipassana, he's covered stage of generation and completion. And he's going to Tekchur, the cutting through to pristine awareness. Here's what he says. Leaving your body, speech, and mind in a state of inactivity is the unsurpassed supreme technique for inserting the energy mind into the central channel. Anybody who studied Vajrayana, the stage of generation is designed to prepare you for the stage of completion. And the essence of the stage of completion is to get all the pranas into the central channel, into the heart chakra, and into the indestructible bindu at your heart to realize the innate mind of clear light. Classic. Right? That's what's all those breathing exercises and visualizations and the mandala and the divine pride and the pure vision and all the six perfections that precede that and the renunciation before that. It's all coming to stage of generation. And then, ta-da! Stage of completion. Friend of mine, Gavin Kilty, has now translated the awesome text on Gwe Samajana, Stage of Completion Practice. He's a really good translator. Awesome text, one of Tsongkhapa's greatest masterpieces. Big, fat book. Incredibly profound, sophisticated, and deep of these enormously sophisticated Gwe Samajana Stage of Completion Practices for bringing the central, the, all the, the, the energy mind, the prana, the prana chitta, the energy mind into the central channel, into the heart chakra, all dissolving it into the indestructible bindu and the mind dissolving and all that remains in the name mind of clear light. And so, incredible stuff. And then here's what, <laughs> here's what's what Pavasana says. Leaving your body, speech, and mind in a state of inactivity is the unsurpassed supreme technique for doing the same thing. He adds, again the Vajra essence, motionlessly, now he gives instruction, motionlessly relax your body in whatever way is comfortable, like an unthinking corpse in a charnel ground. And I want to hasten to add that in the future there'll be this California guy named Alan Wallace that teaches it, and he didn't make that up. <laughs> yeah, I added that. <laughs> I'm going to read it again, just, you know, it's from him and not me. Otherwise, you'd know I made it up, right? Here's Padmasambhava again. Motionlessly relax your body in whatever way is comfortable, like an unthinking corpse in a charnel ground. In other words, the Shavasana really should be okay, because that's the position of an unthinking corpse. 
<laughs> I think it's time to say, duh. Right? So that's settling your body in this natural state. And then he says, let your voice be silent like a lute with its strings cut. You've heard that one before. Now, it's an interesting analogy that I've heard it many, many times that it just, again, a little, little electric arc went on in my mind. And that is the Buddha, when he's giving his classic teachings on shamatha, samadhi, developing samadhi, he gives the analogy. You've heard it before. The lute. Too taut, too slack. Too taut, too slack. Too taut, too slack. I mean, getting finer and finer and finer. You're just, you're tuning your mind, right? Overcoming coarse, medium, subtle excitation, coarse, medium, subtle laxity, until you're pitch perfect. You've tuned your mind and you're ready to achieve shamatha. Right? Classic analogy. And then here he says, like, <laughs> like a lunar with the strings are cut. In other words, you're not tuning your mind. You're cutting the string. You're bypassing your mind. You're not refining your mind, you're not improving it, and you're not achieving shamatha. You're doing a um, bypass surgery right around, going directly to that into which you will dissolve your mind, and it'll let it fix itself. Rangdu, let it release itself. Don't fix it, too much work. Too complicated. Just go right to the end game, and then let your mind come and just dissolve with all its bugs, all its parasites, all its stuff. Let your voice be silent like a lute with its strings cut, and now finally rest your mind in an unmodified state like the primordial presence of space. Remain for a long time in these three ways of resting. And then he makes an extraordinary claim. This pacifies all illnesses due to disturbances of the elements and unfavorable circumstances. And your body, speech, and mind naturally calm down. So in this way, you're really kind of re you're releasing your mind into the substrate consciousness, and ultimately you're releasing your substrate consciousness into rigpa, and the rigpa is a source of well-being, the source of all virtue, and that nectar of, of, of the, the nectar of healing from the pristine awareness from rigpa flows up, and he says this pacifies all illnesses. And your body, speech, and mind naturally calm down, but they're calming down from this ultimate root, this ultimate ground. And he says the ultimate purpose, that's the relative purpose. It's good for your health. It calms body, speech, and mind down. It lets, sets, settles them all in their natural state. That's the relative purpose. But the ultimate purpose, he says, the ultimate purpose of this practice is to experience the Dharmakaya, free of activity. And that's what it's for. That's Dzogchen. And then, we have His Holiness, the Dalai Lama's comment. He taught, I've attended teachings of his, I don't know how many times he's taught Dzogchen, but I've attended three of his teachings. In California, the Bay Area, and then years later in Lerblin, south of France, and then more recently in Sikkim, in Gangpo. And so here's what he said in the teachings, oh, more than 20 years ago, in San Jose, California, then written up later in the book called Dzogchen. He said, it's now His Holiness, he said, when you rest the mind, putting it out of work, the vital energies naturally become refined, 
And solely by non-conceptual meditation, you slip into the clear light with the mind and vital energies. And this requires settling in complete inactivity, which is not so easy. That was him. I was trying to manage. Not very well, I know, but which is not so easy. It should be easy. Like, okay, I can do that. I can do nothing. But you've tried it, right? I can do nothing. Blah, 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 blah. Except that's not nothing. That's something. So, quite interesting. So that was all commentary on the first phase of this practice we've just done, which is like a not-practice practice. Or is symbolic of a whole text that Dujum Lingba wrote called Buddhahood Without Meditation. Without doing something, without striving, without practicing something to achieve something. As long as we are, and here's the gist of it, as long as we're practicing from the perspective of being a sentient being. And of course we are, right? I'm a sentient being. If you have any question about that, I will guarantee I'm a card-carrying full member, lifelong, <coughs> lifelong membership. In fact, multiple lifelong as a sentient being, so I have no doubt about that at all. But the question is, having said that, I mean, it just, it's obvious. It's obvious to me, obvious to you. I'm a sentient being, I'm not a Buddha, right? Clear. The, the question arises, though, is as true as that is, is that the only truth here? Is that the only valid perspective on this person or this person or the, the birds out there in the, you know, the surrounding bushes? Is that the only, only valid perspective? It is valid. It has its truth. Not to be negated. The Buddhas will see that. Will the Buddha, would the Buddha looking at me say, oh yeah, there's Alan Wallace, he's a sentient being. My answer is yes. They would recognize, yeah, there are sentient beings. That's why they became Buddhas, to liberate people like me. Right? And so, yes, it's valid. No question. The question, though, is, is that the only valid perspective? Only valid perspective. Well, what makes me, I'm just giving, a me could be anybody here and anybody outside, human or non-human. So I'm just going to take first person as just one sentient being among countless. What is it that makes me a sentient being? There has to be some reason, right? Some, some basis. Sentient beings have characteristics. How do you identify a sentient being? Well, uh, you have a body that's entangled in grasping and so forth? Yep, I do. Now, Buddha had a body, but it was not tangled up in grasping. And now do you have a mind that has mental afflictions coming up. You identify with them, they torture you, they afflict you, make you unhappy, and so forth. And by the arousal of mental afflictions, you engage in actions that sometimes are really unwholesome. And even the wholesome things you do are all tainted by delusion. Are you one of those people? Do you have a mind like that? My answer is, yep. So you've got me. I've got, a, I've got a sentient being's body and I've got a sentient being's mind, right? So insofar as I'm attending to reality, practicing Dharma from the vantage point of, I've got a body, I'd really like to improve it. I've got a mind, I'd really like to improve that. There's a lot of room for improvement. Then you're practicing as a sentient being. As long as you're practicing as a sentient being, roll up your sleeves. There's a lot of work to be done. A lot of things to do with effort, and you must modify, purify, transform, liberate. Any of those first eight yanas will do. Right? But what did he say here? He said, release this basis of designation, 
upon on the basis of which you identify yourself accurately as a sentient being. How do I identify myself as a sentient being? Upon my sentient being's body, my sentient being's mind. On that basis, I say I'm a sentient being, and I'm right. But the body is not a sentient being. The body is flesh, bone, tissue. Not a sentient being. And the mind is not a sentient being. The mind isn't a sentient being. It's not a person, not an individual. But on the basis of, basis of designation, body, mind, I accurately identify myself. Yeah, I'm a sentient being. Count me in. Right? But what if you release entirely? I mean, really give away as if you never want it back. Your body and your mind. That's what he said. Release your body and mind. Now it's left. What now makes you a sentient being? Your awareness. Is that awareness still conditioned? Is it still within time? Is it carrying certain propensities, tendencies? Yep. That's your subject consciousness, right? That's your ground of becoming, the ground from which you're becoming, becoming, becoming every time you dream, every time you wake up, every time you die, every time you go to the barrel, every time you're reborn. That's the basis. All of those are the yo-yo, this is the palm. Keep on coming back there every time you go back into deep sleep, every time you die. Back to the palm. Then out to the next rebirth, out to the next dream, out to the next morning when you're waking up. That's the palm coming back. That's the basis. I just read this recently. Yeah, we read it. I read it. Vajra Essence. When at one point it said, this is the defining characteristic of a sentient being. Remember that? Well, you know, it's not Rigpa. Buddha has Rigpa. Not a sentient being. That's your defining, that's your core, that's your naked, stripped down nuclear basis of designation. It's not a sentient being, though. The substrate consciousness is not a sentient being. It's not you. It's a stream of consciousness. You have a stream of consciousness, but you're not that stream of consciousness. As long as you identify with that, now you still have a basis of designation as being a sentient being. And you are a sentient being. You've designated upon that basis, oh, I have a substrate consciousness. It's conditioned, contaminated with mental afflictions, habitual propensities, karmic seeds, and so forth. Then, okay, you're not yet differentiated, if that's what you've stripped yourself down to. From that perspective, now you're not a human being. Substrate consciousness isn't human. There's nothing human about it. But nor an animal, or a deva, or us, or anything else. You're not differentiated yet as particularly this, this type of sentient being versus that type of sentient being. You're a stem cell sentient being. And that is, you're ready to become any type of sentient being. All the Buddhist teachings say, you know, if you're looking inside, if you can see, you'll find seeds or imprints for all the six realms of existence. Unless you're an Arya, you could wind up in any of the realms. Aryas, no. They're free. They're free of the lower ones. You know? So as long as we're identifying there, as long as we're identifying with, clinging to, preferring, liking the qualities of the substrate consciousness, the, the luminosity, the bliss, the non-conceptuality of the substrate consciousness, holding it close. Now you're just holding close your core nuclear identity as a sentient being, and you remain there. And that's where you get stuck. It's a really nice place for a while, but you get stuck. All of the teachings say that. All of them. 
There's just no debate there. Right? Essential, as I emphasized earlier on, essential to get there. Because that's what he says before he even starts teaching shamati. He said the point of settling body, speech, and mind in a natural state is to ascertain the substrate consciousness, right? That's what the shamata is for. That's called settling the mind in this natural state, as he will say. You started at the beginning of the session, settling body, speech, and mind. We all know the drill, the preparation. Then you do the practice. But the culmination of your shamata practice is to finish what you started. You started to settle your mind in its natural state, and when you achieve shamata, your mind has dissolved into the substrate consciousness. Good, now you finish the job. And now your mind has settled in its natural state. Uncontrived, unmodified, unconfigured. Not liberated, but you've stripped it down to your nuclear basis in samsara, your ground of becoming. I find this endlessly fascinating. I'm sorry, you know, it's, I keep on blabbing like that, but I just, wow. I've heard this many times. Every time I hear it, like, wow, that's really amazing. And that's just the first part of phase two of Shamata Vedasana. But then he goes deeper. Then he goes deeper. Right? You're resting there. Okay, you've created a little base camp. Create a little base camp there. You're resting. The words are wrong, but you're doing the practice correctly. But you're, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. You're, you know just what he said. And you know you're doing it right, so you have the confidence. And you're just resting there. Exactly doing the practice as he said which means, means doing, of course, essentially nothing, but luminously, cognizantly, simply resting your awareness without modification in its, own in its own natural luminosity and lucidity. But he doesn't let you off so easy. He says, okay, now start doing something. And part of me says, do I have to? <laughs> I'm really lucky in here. <laughs> he says, no, you have to. Don't get too comfortable. Don't just get too comfortable there. Start doing something. Set up an oscillation. But now go deeper. And see that you can do it. This is not too hard. You can invert your awareness right in upon your consciousness. We've done that before. That was phase one. And then release it. You can accentuate and release. We can do that. So yes, I can do that. All right, so he says, okay, accentuate, release, intensify, release. And now, as you're doing something, you're bound to have a sense, which you already had. It's not a Buddhist invention. It's not something that started when you started meditating. You already have a sense of being the agent. I mean, kids know that. You know how they say it. I didn't do that. Not my fault. She did it. You know? Or I did it. Looking for some congratulations, some positive feedback. I did that. You know? We know that very, very well. I didn't do that. I did do that. Nobody has to teach us to say that. Nobody has to teach us to have that sense. I am the one who did that, or who didn't. So that sense is already there before you learn anything about Buddhism or meditation or Dzogchen or anything. That's already there. And now he's saying, okay, strip it down and look at it. When you're doing nothing else in the world except for just controlling your mind, and very simply releasing a real simple task, Release, arouse, release, arouse. Somebody's doing that. Nobody's making you do that. Not Padmasambhava, not me. Ridiculous. I can't make anybody do anything. So you're doing it because you chose to. So now, as you're doing it, 
then invert right, invert or coalesce, gather, intensify, focus, concentrate your awareness, not just on the simple experience of being conscious, but in upon yourself, excuse me, yourself as the agent, the one who's doing it. What comes up? What comes up as you attend closely to your experience of being the one who's doing it? And again, it's not a koan, like, it's like an insoluble puzzle that you, you have to blow your mind or something. No, it's actually asking you to do something you can do. And that is, see what comes up. When you attend to you observe your own mind, you observe yourself, you observe yourself as the agent, what comes up? And if what comes up is a sheer vacuity, that's the answer. If what comes up is an appearance, that's the answer. If it's a feeling, it's an emotion, it's a desire, it's whatever it is, attend closely. And if we're here not for an eight-week retreat, but we're just all living in retreat, you know, if this were just a long-term place to achieve enlightenment, then we'd really slow down. And then, you know, with a really qualified teacher, then you'd receive these instructions. And as in the classic practice in Zen, the Zen master in Jinzai will give you a koan, and then say, now come back. Now, that was the koan. Now, report today. And then respond. They say, now go back. And then the next day or two days, a week later, okay, come back. Now, report. What did you see? What did you come up with? Give a response. Now go back. So there's that whole, that whole dynamic, you know, and which you have more than one day. We have eight weeks. We're going to be moving on. But the long term, if you really have a place that you're doing this you know, for long term, then that's what you do. And you take your time at it. You know, one day may be a bit short. That was for the gifted. Right? But you'd go in and then you'd come to your teacher and say, I did exactly what you said, and this is what I saw. The wrong answer is, I didn't see anything, or I couldn't do it, or I don't know. Well then go back, stupid, and check more carefully. What did you see? Did you see your venture vacuity? That's an answer. But you say you didn't see anything at all. That means, well, go back and try again, and see what you see. And then release. So you're not pushing too hard. You're not stressing out. You're not getting uptight, round up, always pushing, pushing, pushing. As deeply as you penetrate, I like to call it a cognoscopy, you know, scoping right into, instead of your colon, a nicer area. Space of your mind, the very sense of being the agent. You probe right in to your experience of being the agent, and you release, release, and so then see what you see. And see if you see anything more than empty appearances. Now he makes them then, just having described that. In fact, I'm going to read it just because I don't want to paraphrase at this point, not when the book's right here. He says, Steadily observe yourself and then release again. By so doing, find stability, or it might be better to say find stillness. A very deep sense of stillness will arise. And you may even identify Rigpa, Christina Wright. So I was about to spill the beans, what was it, yesterday? Yeah, yesterday. When I was telling about um, Gantin Tukuramachi's one day of giving really pith instructions, core instructions. Where's Maria Elena? Maria Elena here? Oh, Dennis, right, she told me, yeah. She was there for those teachings. Somebody else here? Somebody else was there too? Yes, yes. Oh, a couple of people, yeah. They were quite extraordinary, weren't they? 
And so his teachings, you are my witness. If I screw it up, then you will, you please do tell me. But when he was giving now, okay, he's given the teachings, he's shown the view, and so forth. But he also said, here's a practice. And part of the practice is just that, just that not doing, that simply resting without grasping and so forth, just right. You know all about that. But then he added another dimension. He said, do this on the cushion, do this in between sessions. And that is probe in upon, that is attend closely to that which is aware. Remember that? To that which is aware, the observer, the observer is also the agent, probe in upon that and do that not only in formal sessions when you're on the cushion, but in between sessions and do it as continuously as possible. So in other words, both phases of this. Just that resting in sheer inactivity, but sustaining the flow of cognizance, of clarity, of stillness, on the one hand, but he also said, attend to the observer. And you could say, be a slight commentary to that, attend to the agent, the one who is doing, the one who is observing. And that's pretty much what he had said. I don't recall anything else he said in terms of method. Now he's couched that within Lama Mipam Rinpoche's teachings on the view, Zogchen view. He also distinguishes Rigpa from substrate, and substrate consciousness. And so it really highlights a point. And that is the method, and I've seen the same method in another book, The Flight of the Guruda. The Flight of the Guruda, another Dzogchen classic by Shabkar Rinpoche. And look at the method there. It's all Dzogchen. It's just 100% Dzogchen. I don't recall there being references to shamatha. I haven't memorized the text. If there are references to shamatha, it's very brief. But I don't think there are any. But clearly, what is unequivocally true is a Dzogchen text. It's all about Dzogchen practice. And from what I recall of it, it's essentially just that. It's just resting. Without modification, without doing, without effort, without modification, without striving. Resting in a way. Then you say, well, does that mean shaman without a sign and the Dzogchen are the same? Not quite. If the place you're resting, the perspective in which you rest, if that is still your psyche, still kind of enmeshed within conceptual framework, language, thought, subject-object duality, and you're just resting there, that's not so gentle. That's resting, resting quietly in your dualistic mind. That's not so gentle. Right? But if you dissolve your mind, your dualistic mind, your psyche, your coarse mind, if you dissolve that by way of shamatha into the substrate consciousness, and you're viewing reality from the perspective of your substrate consciousness, you're viewing consciousness from the perspective of substrate consciousness, Substrate consciousness, self-illuminating, right? Self-knowing, and you're resting there. That's not Dzogchen. That's resting in substrate consciousness. That's having a chief. That's having a chief shamatha. But if you cut through, if you cut through the substrate consciousness, and you go from clarity to lucidity. The clarity, the brilliance, the sharpness, the high definition, the radiance of substrate consciousness, right? But remember how Gantin Tukurumache distinguished between the two. It's really clear, isn't it? The difference between, as somebody just mentioned to me, incredibly clear dreams, just one that he just mentioned in a, in a private meeting, having extremely clear, vivid dreams, so clear, so radiant, that the person would wake up just so, so bright. That's clarity. 
but in those particular dreams, not lucid, but clear, so clear, wake up. That's clarity. But then whether your dream is extremely clear or moderately clear, or only mildly clear, if you have that radical shift of perspective into lucidity and you're recognizing the dream as a dream, then that's lucidity. And that is very close to analogy. Of resting in the brightness, the brilliance, the clarity, the high definition of substrate consciousness, and then breaking through to Rigpa is really a close parallel. To break through from the clarity of a very bright dream to the lucidity of recognizing the dream as the dream. If you're doing the same practice, exactly the same practice we just saw there, resting without modification, and then inverting your awareness right in upon the agent. If you're doing that from the perspective of Rigpa, that's Dzogchen practice. If you're doing it from the perspective of the Course Mind, then that's a Shamatha practice. If you're doing it from the perspective of Substrate Consciousness, that's a practice from having achieved Shamatha. The method is the same. Perspectives, three different perspectives. Course Mind, Dualistic Mind, enmeshed within a conceptual framework. Substrate consciousness, which is not configured as a human being and not enmeshed in a conceptual framework. Concepts are really very, very dormant. And then the deepest level. Same practice. So what's so encouraging, I find, as a person who's getting on in years, knowing death is soon, what I find really encouraging is that I don't have to become a really accomplished scholar of Dzogchen because it's too late for me. Number one, I don't have the don't have the drive. I know it's valuable. I think it's wonderful that younger people are spending 10 years, 15 years, become Kempos, study all the seven treasures of Longchamba and the Guya Gaba Tantra with multiple commentaries and Mama Mipamarambache's brilliant expositions of Dzogchen. And there's so much more. The Tantras themselves, so much to learn. I think it's wonderful. But I'm not going to do it. You're just hearing an old man, basically. I'm not going to do it. I spent 20 years in pretty intense study, even studied physics and all that stuff. I think it's really worthwhile, but I'm not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Nor am I encouraged to do it. But in fact, when, when I started Dzogchen, Gautam Bhutti didn't do any of those. He didn't teach me one single text of that sort. These great treatises, not one. I was 40 when he started. He started on me. And he taught me only practice sex. Never one deviation away. Every single one. Practice, 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 practice. And every single one of them, virtually without exception, Shamata, Pashana, Tekshu, Turkyo. Shamata, Pashana, Tekshu, Turkyo. Mahamudra. That's it. That's just what I needed. It was just the words of my precious teacher. But my point here is whether it's coming from the Benjamin or Mache, this extraordinary Galupa master saying there are two approaches, remember? There's the approach of learning the view, and on the basis of having mastered the view, you've gotten your Acharya degree, you've gotten your Geshe degree, your Kempo degree, Kempo degree, whatever, and then meditating. From the view, then going into meditation. There's one route. And then, Panjana says, and then there's the other route. And that's going directly from meditative equipoise. And from meditative equipoise, allowing the view to emerge from your own practice. 
and Pengenergy, this great, awesome Balupa scholar and contemplative, say, my approach is the latter. He says this in his root text and commentary to Mahamudra. That's a Galupa. The Galupas are incredible scholars. Awesome. Awesome scholars. Amazing. In the vein of Sakya Pandita, Narajuna, and these other just awesome, brilliant geniuses. There are many of them. And they really are. I think you know I'm speaking with total sincerity here. Really awesome scholarship. Almost kind of daunting. I mean, not almost, really daunting. Like, how can anybody learn that much and keep it all together integrated in this vast ocean of wisdom? It's amazing. So that's Penjanamaji, speaking from that vast erudition and saying, here's my path. Meditation first, let the view come out of meditation. And then Padmasambhava says, as we'll see. There are two approaches. There's the view, so the view of the meditation, or there's the other approach. Enter into the meditative state, meditative equipoise, which exactly we know by context is shamatha, and then let view emerge from your meditative equipoise. And he said, that's my path. That's my preference, that's my approach. First the view, then the meditation. Excuse me, first the meditation. Out of that the view. So you do this practice. We're about to wrap up. It's dinner time. I'm so thrilled by this. I mean, it gives really hope. Like, whoa. No geezer like myself. Still hope. Don't have to be smarter than I am. Don't have to be more erudite. Really. I think I have to learn what I need to learn. Just have to do it. Do the practice. And you start out doing it from the perspective of your coarse dualistic conceptual mind. Okay, get over it. That's where it's going to start. Is it Dzogchen? Are you a Dzogchen practitioner? Well, yeah, preschool. But you're in the school. Preschool, Harvard preschool, you know? Pre, 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 school, but it's still Harvard, you know? Harvard for five-year-olds. Continue. Let it unfold. Let it reveal itself. And your mind, your course mind, dualistic mind, will dissolve. Be persistent. Call for blessings. Give you everything you can. And let that mind dissolve into substrate consciousness. Achieve shamatha. That's what they're all saying to do. So cool. Well, that's a big step in the right direction. Now you're viewing mind, thoughts, images coming up from the perspective of substrate consciousness. Good. Well then, carry on. See if you can then break through the revocation, grasping on true existence, of your own substrate consciousness. See if you can break through that. Good. Then get pointing out stretches. And then cut through. And then the whole Dzogchen view, all the seven treasures of Longchenma, all of the Dzogchen, Dzogchen tantras, all the great commentaries, will all emerge right out of your own practice. And Dujum Lingma, that is to say, Padmasambhava in the Vajra essence says, when your practice goes there, and you see your own face, that's how they say, you see your own face, you know your own nature, by your own nature, Rigpa knowing itself non-dually, then by that realization you receive all the four empowerments. You don't have to go outside for somebody to put hands on the head and vases and pictures and drinking and all that kind of business. That's all very good, all very good. But no, go there and you get all the four empowerments from the inside. So, you don't need to look outside. And in conclusion, that was the core Samaya that Gandhi and Dugaramaji gave us for the empowerment. Only one thing you must, if you take this empowerment, 
Don't look outside yourself for Buddha. That's it. So, do that for one day. You're going to go back. Gyatrakoji has a lovely commentary. Drench your mind in that. Do it all day. Do it all night. See you tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. We'll continue. Enjoy your day.